I've called this lecture International Law in the Age of Adjudication. The reason for that is that today is probably the time when international courts and tribunals have been at their busiest. There has never been a time in the history of international relations when a state was more likely to find that a dispute in which it was involved, whether with another state or with a private party, an individual or a corporation, was going to be taken to court. Today, international courts and the processes that they apply are an essential and central part of the fabric of how states do business. But that's a very recent development. If I go back 35 years to 1977, when I was a student taking international law for the first time, international courts were virtually irrelevant to the international scene. The International Court of Justice had only one case on its books, the Aegean Continental Shelf Dispute brought by Greece against Turkey. The year after I took my degree, the court decided that it didn't have jurisdiction to hear that case. And in any event, Turkey, the respondent state, chose not to take part in the proceedings because it considered that the lack of jurisdiction was manifest and therefore the case should never have been entered on the court's list. And that was very much a feature of the whole of the 1970s. There were boycotts by the respondent state in six of the seven other cases brought before the International Court of Justice during that decade. And it wasn't just the International Court of Justice that had very little work. Interstate arbitration was at a low point. There were only two substantial arbitrations between states during the decade. In investor state arbitration, which has become such an important feature of international life in recent years, was almost unknown in the 1970s. And when it took place, it took place within the framework of a concession contract between the state and the investor, rather than under the more general international law regime created by a treaty. So far as human rights was concerned, the only standing Court of Human Rights at the time was the European Court of Human Rights, and its entire jurisprudence could fit within a single volume. I know that because I had to edit that volume at one stage in my career. It's true that the European Commission of Human Rights, which still existed at that time, was rather busier, but even so, it was a fraction of what it's, uh, is going on at the moment. The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade had a dispute settlement mechanism but it had nothing like the significance of the World Trade Organization mechanisms today. And as for international criminal law, that was just a dream, a remote memory of the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials at the end of the Second World War. When I took my master's degree in international law, the idea of an international criminal law was simply never mentioned. Now contrast that with the picture that we have today. The International Court of Justice has never been busier. Over the last two decades, it has decided more cases than it decided in the first 40 years of its existence. There have never been fewer than 10 cases on its list at any one time. It has given more judgments in the last three years than it gave throughout the decade of the 1970s. And perhaps even more important, the nature of the cases which the court receives are far, far more significant than the, the cases of an earlier age. 
the practice of respondent states boycotting judgments, not turning up to take part in the proceedings, that has almost entirely died out. And the court now receives cases from every continent in the world. By my reckoning, 88 states out of the 193 that are members of the United Nations have taken part in a contentious case before the International Court of Justice at some stage. And in the recent proceedings for an advisory opinion on the Declaration of Independence for Kosovo, 43 states out of the 193 took part in the proceedings, either by submitting a written brief or by coming along and arguing the case orally. Those 43 included many states that had never taken part in proceedings before the International Court of Justice before. And it's not just the International Court that is busier. Other standing international tribunals are finding the same phenomenon. The International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea has just given its first judgment in an interstate maritime boundary dispute between Bangladesh and Myanmar in March 2012 and before that had given an important advisory opinion and a long line of judgments in ship arrest cases. The World Trade Organization's dispute settlement mechanism hears a large number of cases every year involving trading practices. The European Court of Human Rights now decides more than a thousand cases a year and it's been joined by other regional human rights courts and tribunals for Africa for the inter-American system, and a number of tribunals that deal with specialist treaties on human rights, such as the United Nations Committee Against Torture and the much more general United Nations Human Rights Committee. Investor state arbitration has taken off in a phenomenal way. The International Centre for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID, registered 369 cases between 1972 and the end of 2011. 334 of those cases were registered after 1995. So there has been an enormous increase in that volume of work as well. International criminal law has moved from being a remote dream to being a reality. The International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which is now gradually winding up its work, has succeeded in bringing to trial all of the over 160 people that it indicted. The International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, the Tribunal for Lebanon, very much a feature today of the international legal scene. And of course there is the International Criminal Court, established under the 1998 Rome Statute, which only a few weeks ago gave its first judgment in the Lubanga case. Interestingly, on the same day that the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea gave its judgment in the Bangladesh-Myanmar case. Now there's an enormous amount to welcome in all that. The fact that international courts and tribunals are functioning properly means that it is possible for disputes that would once have been resolved by uh, violence or at the very least by a long period of sustained hostility and animosity between countries to be resolved in a peaceful, effective and fair way. Just to give you one example, during the 1990s a bitter dispute between Libya and Chad over an area known as the Aouzou Strip was referred to the International Court of Justice by those two states. Now the Aouzou Strip was entirely in the physical possession of Libya at the time 
and Libya was, of course, much the more powerful of the two states. The court's judgment found that the, t the title to that area of territory belonged to Chad, and therefore the court ordered Libya to withdraw from the disputed territory. The Libyan government withdrew within a few months of the court's judgment having been handed down. We'll take the case of the disputes about maritime boundaries. As a result of changes in the law of the sea, starting in the 1970s and culminating in the 1982 Law of the Sea Convention, coastal states acquired rights over vast areas of the seabed and the water column which had not previously fallen within their sovereignty. Now that, of course, gave rise to enormous difficulties where states' claims overlapped. And those overlaps, for example, render the entirety of the Mediterranean a territory that is capable of being claimed by one coastal state or another. Now those disputes could have been an exceptional source of animosity and unrest between neighbours. In practice, though, it's been possible to deal with them through a series of judgments of the International Court of Justice, arbitration awards, and most recently, the judgment of the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea. It's been one of the most successful instances of the, not only the resolution of individual disputes by adjudication, but also tribunals establishing a series of principles which allowed other states to negotiate settlements of their boundary differences with their neighbours. Or if we take the world of human rights, the growing jurisdiction of human rights courts and tribunals and their increased activism has made rights effective in a way that they had never been in the old international law of the past. But if this is all a great cause for rejoicing, and I certainly believe that it is, it's important to realise that it's not without its challenges as well. I want to consider three of those today. The first is the sheer pressure created by the number of cases in the international legal system can be a very serious difficulty for courts that were set up to deal with a far smaller caseload than they now find themselves bearing. Now that is most acute in the European Court of Human Rights. Let me say a little bit about that court. It covers 47 states, roughly 800 million people. As I say, in the 1970s, it was handing down three or four judgments a year. In 2011, it gave 1,511 judgments. It dealt with a total of 52,188 applications, a great many of which, of course, are dismissed summarily because they're clearly unfounded. But despite that activity in 2011, the list of cases pending before that court actually increased. At the beginning of 2011, just short of 140,000 applications were waiting to be dealt with by the European Court of Human Rights. At the end of one of its busiest years in 2011, just over 150,000 cases waited to be resolved. So that's an enormous backlog and a serious problem for a court that is already very badly overworked. Now, the International Court of Justice has a much smaller list of cases to deal with. There were 12 pending on the day I gave this lecture. But of course, those cases are often of enormous complexity 
and they require very lengthy pleading between the different states involved because the issues are often very, very significant for the governments and peoples in question. The court system was created to, on the basis that the International Court of Justice would deal with one substantive case at a time. It now finds itself dealing with three or four at the same time. And since the court always sits with a full composition of 15, unless the parties expressly request a hearing before a chamber of only five judges, this is creating considerable strain in the way the court does its work. The result was a backlog that built up in the late 1990s and the early years of this millennium, which we've only just succeeded in clearing. Now, in criminal law, the need to deal with the pressure of cases is perhaps even more acute because it's been necessary for the International Criminal Court and the International Criminal Tribunals to devise rules of procedure which enable them, on the one hand, to deal with cases reasonably expeditiously, and on the other hand, ensure that each defendant is given a fair trial. There's a tendency in some of the criticisms of international criminal courts and tribunals to hark back to the trials that took place at the end of the Second World War and say, well, these were all dealt with much more rapidly than the trials that we have today. Well, yes, they were, but one case that I looked at, which culminated in three of the defendants being executed, the case of a German U-boat commander who had torpedoed a merchant vessel and then machine-gunned the survivors from that vessel. That case lasted three days. The defendant's lawyers were only given 24 hours to prepare, and they didn't have copies of any of the textbooks that were being relied on by the court. The prosecutor lent his copy of the textbook on international law to the defendant's lawyer on the day of the hearing. Now, nobody would suggest that that is a satisfactory attainment of what we today regard as a fair trial and due process. So that's the first challenge that I think faces international courts and tribunals. The second is what I'd call the problem of fragmentation. Now, fragmentation excites a lot of comment. To my mind, it has two different aspects, and it's important to keep them separate. The first is that the jurisdiction of any one court is almost always partial. I say partial because, generally speaking, an international court has jurisdiction only if the parties to a case have at some stage consented to that jurisdiction. It doesn't have to be contemporary consent. In the International Court of Justice statute, for example, it's possible for courts to agree in advance to the jurisdiction of the court maybe in what we call the optional clause, Article 36 of the Statute of the Court, which provides that a state may opt in in advance to what is a, a form of compulsory jurisdiction, but which only binds it as regards other states that have also opted into that system. Or it could give its consent in advance by means of a clause in one of the more general treaties, such as the Convention Against Torture, the Genocide Convention, the various treaties on counter-terrorism, all of which provide that disputes about the interpretation or application of the treaty may be referred by either party to the International Court of Justice. But nevertheless, that consent element is critical. And although the number of states that have consented to the optional clause made the necessary declaration, 
has increased over the years. It is still relatively low. On the day I gave this lecture, 66 out of 193 states were parties in the sense that they had made the optional clause declaration. Now, although that's a considerable improvement on the position a few years ago, it still compares very badly with the position during the 1930s when the pre-war Permanent Court of International Justice had 42 out of an international community of only 55 states at the time accepting its compulsory jurisdiction. Now, this creates three difficulties for the International Court of Justice. The first is that there is very often a time-consuming dispute about jurisdiction before the court can even address the merits of the case. The second is that there is a risk of uneven treatment. It may well be that one state has a complaint against two of its neighbours. The complaint against the first neighbour can be brought before the International Court of Justice because, let us say, that neighbour and the, the complaining state have both made declarations under the optional clause. The complaint against the other neighbouring state may be impossible to bring before the International Court of Justice because there is no jurisdictional basis for the court to hear the case. And that gives a perception of unfairness, of an unevenness of treatment in international law. The third difficulty is what I sometimes call the Cinderella syndrome. When my children were younger, I used to read them a fairy story in which Cinderella uh, assumes the character of a princess, attends a ball, and leaves behind her a single glass slipper, which the prince then tries on the foot of every woman in the, in the kingdom in order to find out whose slipper it is. And the book had a wonderful illustration of a lady trying to squeeze her substantial foot into a slipper that was at least five sizes too small for it. The same problem can arise when the jurisdiction of the court is based on a treaty dealing with a specific subject matter, but the issues between the states in the dispute range far beyond that single treaty. Very often the result is that the claimant state has to try and squeeze its arguments into a treaty clause that is actually far too narrow for what it is trying to do. So all of these are aspects of this difficulty that arises from the partial jurisdiction of an international court. The other fragmentation problem concerns the sheer multiplicity of courts. Now, of course, every state will have more than one court. But within a state, there is almost always a hierarchical structure which ensures that one particular court can always have the last word. There is no such structure in international law. There is no appeal from one international court to another. There is no body that is established as having the final word in all matters. And that's given rise to a large literature about how we could have a form of judicial anarchy in international law, with one court choosing to take one position about an issue, while another court takes a radically different one. The example that's usually given of this is a difference of view between the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia about the extent to which a state could be held responsible for the acts of non-state actors, rebel bands, guerrilla movements, that are not directly controlled by it. 
the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in a case called Tadic in the mid-1990s, took a rather different view, a wider view of this issue, than had been taken by the International Court of Justice. The International Court of Justice has now reaffirmed its own position in its 2007 judgment on the, in the genocide case between Bosnia-Herzegovina and Serbia-Montenegro. But the reason why this example is always produced is that it is virtually the only example of its kind. If you look at the practice of international courts and tribunals as a whole, the picture that emerges is not one of conflicts between them, but rather of a scrupulous effort on the part of all courts to try and achieve as much consistency as possible between their judgments. So, for example, you find the European Court of Human Rights referring to judgments of the International Court of Justice on principles of treaty interpretation. Well, take the area I mentioned a few minutes ago, the maritime boundary cases. If you look back over the last five or six years, you'll find judgments from the International Court of Justice in the cases between Nicaragua and Honduras and Romania and the Ukraine, a judgment of the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea in the Bangladesh-Myanmar case, and the awards of arbitration tribunals in the Guyana-Suriname and Barbados-Trinidad and Tobago cases. Now, if you look at those cases as a whole, you don't find any significant variance in the approach taken by the different courts and tribunals that gave those judgments and awards. On the contrary, what you find is each referring to the jurisprudence of the others and trying to ensure a consistent application of core principles of international law. So I think that the fragmentation challenge, though it's real, is one that is often overemphasized, overstressed in the literature. I think the solution to it lies not in trying to change the entire structure of international adjudication, but rather in a simple practical approach whereby judges of different courts take note of what the other courts are doing, take an interest in what they're doing, read their judgments, and act in good faith. The third challenge I want to mention is that concerning implementation of judgments of international courts and tribunals. It's all very fine for a court to give a judgment, but if the parties ignore it, what good does it achieve? That was a question that was often asked in the 1970s when respondent states tended not to take part in proceedings. Even then, it wasn't perhaps quite as acute a question as it was sometimes made out to be. Because if you actually look at the judgments of the 1970s, even where the respondent state did boycott the proceedings, it did not ignore the result. And the judgments tended to have some effect on the disputes in question, even though one of the states had not taken part in them. Now, if you look at the position today, the implementation of judgments of the International Court of Justice has an extremely good record, in many respects better than I used to find in relation to the implementation of judgments of national courts. It's often a much more difficult problem than people realize. International arbitration awards have also tended to have a very good record of compliance. Just take two interesting comparators here. First of all, you have the Alabama case, one of the oldest arbitrations of the modern world, a case between the United States and the United Kingdom back in the 1860s. 
The result of that award was a substantial order that the United Kingdom pay damages to the United States. One estimate is that in today's money, if you take the damages as a share of the national budget of the states concerned, you would be talking about an award of well over a hundred billion US dollars. Yet the United States received that money from the United Kingdom. And the payment of the damages meant that the two states removed from the relations between them, a subject that risked poisoning those relations for more than a generation. Or if you take similarly the Ozu Strip judgment of the International Court of Justice in the 1990s, the fact there that Libya complied with that judgment so quickly enabled relations between those two states to be put back on a normal footing. Or look at the maritime delimitation cases. Every judgment or award that has been handed down in that area has been complied with. Not always with great enthusiasm, sometimes very reluctantly. But enthusiasm isn't what is called for here. What is called for is compliance. And those judgments and awards have had their effect. They've been applied. And as I say, they've also created a standard which has enabled states to negotiate solutions to other disputes on maritime boundary delimitation. Perhaps the biggest problem today lies with the implementation of judgments of criminal courts. A criminal court within a state can usually enforce an order that somebody turn up and, and appear as defendant or take part in proceedings as a witness. International courts don't have that degree of compliance machinery available to them. They don't have policemen and bailiffs they can send in to enforce their judgments. But even in the criminal world, it's striking the extent to which the jurisdiction of international criminal tribunals has worked in the end. Everyone indicted by the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia eventually stood trial before that tribunal. So just to sum up, the challenges for international adjudication are real. But those challenges shouldn't be allowed to detract from the very obvious achievements that international adjudication has had within the space of the last 35 years. It has, I think, helped to make a reality out of many rights which previously existed only on paper, and has made a major uh, contribution towards the improvement of relations between states, particularly between neighbouring states.